All right. Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. What up, Alex? How's it going? Living. Living on a Sunday, drinking some coffee. But today we are going to be talking about different training methodologies and where you put them into your programs. So we talk about triphasic, we're going to talk about density circuits, we're going to talk about contrast training, all the different things that you've seen in your program or as a strength coach you know about, where we think it should fit into the programs and explain what it is. So Alex, what do you want to talk about first? I guess we can talk about a little bit of triphasic um, training, which is a method of training that's kind of popularized by Cal Dietz um, from the University of Minnesota. And he's a pretty well-known exercise science researcher and strength coach um, in the field. His method of triphasic sounds really great on paper. And I think it does work well in a lot of settings. My biggest beef with triphasic is kind of the zealot type of atmosphere that we get around. What is triphasic for the people at home? I I was getting there. Okay. Um, is like the zealot atmosphere that goes with it is like, this is the only thing I will do is triphasic. And I got to know what's the latest on this to do the program. But anyway, triphasic is a three phases of muscle action based program. So whenever you do any movement, you have your three muscle phases, which are concentric, isometric, and eccentric. So eccentric is the lowering down phase is the, the muscle lengthening phase. Isometric is a static hold. Um, typically that's done at the bottom of the range of motion or at 90 degrees. And then concentric is the muscle shortening phase where we either move the bar or the weight up. Um, and so each different phase in a triphasic program emphasizes one of those muscle actions. So typically your first phase is eccentric. Then you go to a phase of isometric, then you go to a phase of concentric. Um, and then there's some different phases at the end of this talk about peaking and tapering and a good place. I think in your program to use this, and I don't always go straight in sequence with it, but for an eccentric um, phase, I think is really good. Like after competition or when we don't have a competition on the books, Um, an eccentric phase is very taxing to the body. The eccentric muscle action is the most difficult for your body to handle. Um, and I'm not talking about just like lowering down your five pound dumbbells on bench press, right? We go super maximal loads. We go really heavy. We take five to seven seconds to 10 seconds on the way down. So think of if my max squat is 300 pounds, I'm going to do my best to squat 325, but I only want to delay it on the way down and take 10 seconds to get to the bottom of my squat. And maybe I don't come up or maybe I have weight releasers or I use bands or something like this, but it's really emphasizing the the negative part of the motion. No, I agree. I use this a lot. I'll use the eccentric phase a bunch, like you said, right after competition or like in the off season with athletes. Like Mm -hmm. this is huge for, I like triphasic for the NFL population. You got to put on size. Guess what? I haven't found a better way to put on size than triphasic. Yeah. <laughs> and eccentric, that's one of the biggest gains from eccentric type of training is a, a increase in muscle mass. Um, I forget. I take I, it back. I, I, hold on. I take that back. German volume training puts on fucking crazy size, but triphasic you, is second. If you eat and train appropriately with it. But yeah. um, back in the day, I used to really get in the weeds with it because the certain gym I trained out, only you did triphasic. But um one of my biggest like, beefs. Which one was that? The University of Denver. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, 
And one of my biggest beefs with it was some of the proposed like mechanisms that were in the book. Um, but back to the point is that eccentric works really well for three or four main reasons. One is the size component, the hypertrophy. Um, two is motor unit recruitment, because during that eccentric movement, your body is literally struggling to find the motor units to move this weight. Right. Um, so recruit, recruit higher threshold, more units. Um, two is a kind of learning adaptation, taking your time and using a different tempo, a different approach to lifting weight. It helps you master the movement a little bit more is something that I found. And then I think the the fourth one is eccentric mo- movement gives you a bigger hormonal response, but I, I'm not hundred percent sure. No, it does. Yeah. Okay. So those are kind of the four main <clears throat> Uh, benefits of an eccentric type of block. And then, but I think one of the justifications is in triphasic, he talks about the training V a lot, right? Yeah. So your V is this is a bar or a line graph representation of eccentric to isometric to concentric. And it looks like a V. Um, so the slope going downhill is your eccentric. The point at the bottom is your isometric and the slope going up is your concentric muscle action. And one of the arguments is that slowing down and extrapolating your eccentric training will make this negative slope on the V more uh, steep or more greater. More vertical. Right. And more vertical. And um, I don't see the logic behind that. Again, maybe I need to research more into it, but I was fairly sure that that's a little bit of uh, a reach. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the theory that in my mind, how it made sense was it's the theory that the more time you have under it, like in the eccentric phase, the more time you have the motor control of that phase, the more efficient you'll be with the movement, which to me, the V is the almost like a stretch. Like I think about it yeah. equated to like a stretch cycle. Right. And that's so, how it should be. But I'm not sure. I mean, if we're going to buy into like the said principle specific adaptation right. to impose demands, like right. let's slow this motion down so that we can do it faster. You know, that's. Well, that's the, I mean, that's the age old, old saying of, if you want to play fast, you got to train fast, right? That's so yeah. many people say that you shouldn't do eccentrics going into the season, which right. we just talked about, but it's, I don't disagree with you. I don't yeah, disagree so with you at it's all. It's an interesting, but like we said, we listed the benefits of an eccentric type of phase when you should do it. And then um, the one more caveat that we should add is when you're doing this eccentric training, um, follow protocol when you're doing it. You know, the <laughs> protocol in triphasic is not bad. Don't just load the bar super maximally and then go as slow as you can for a ton yeah. of failed reps. Just do max sets every week. Right. Uh, <laughs> again, and this protocol, again, why we recommended that you do it in an off season or without a fight coming up is because it is so damaging and you're going to be extremely sore. It's a difficult method of training. And you're probably is, putting mass on. Exactly. Which is why you get a lot of results, but it's also... Um, takes more out of you for like your skill practice or your performance. So it's a a time and place. And I think, so I think the most underutilized thing in all of training is the next part of Caldeets isometrics. uh, Yep. Yeah. I I love isometric. I think it's, this is, this is what I use almost not almost daily, daily with my athletes that I Mm -hmm. learned from the triphasic, not learned from the triphasic system, but was popularized by the triphasic system. Um, is, is going through an East or a, sorry, an isometric protocol and loading up athletes in desired ranges of motion and having them truly master a position at a time. 
Um, this is how I integrate functional capacity and try to get it as close to absolute capacity as possible. This is where I make them functionally sound. Maybe I put it at the end range of a mobility exercise and we do end range isometrics. That's, that's how we actually control that range of motion. That's where the brain understands that, Hey, I can get here safely. Let's hold this as long as possible. And the mobility increases as well. Um, it's, and then on top of it, what is grappling? <laughs> a fuck ton right. of isometrics. So it's sport specific as well. And you can throw that in. It's not going to damage a, mu- a bunch of the tissue. It's not extremely metabolically demanding because you're not really moving around. It's mostly just muscular contraction. And then you can go right into what we'll talk about later is I go a lot of isometric training into like plyometric or speed-based work and going from one to the other and training them to go from a stop to a go as fast as possible. How long are you holding some of those isometrics and either your mobility or your strength training exercises? Um, Mobility. So I'll go through a ramping sequence of, I'll start at about anywhere between if it's hard for somebody or it's a new movement, just three to five seconds, but then I'll ramp all the way up to about a 30 second hold over the course of a Mm -hmm. five to six week mezzo. Um, So it's, it, it greatly increases, but, or sorry, greatly increases, but with the mobility exercise, know that that's probably in, they're doing that probably three days a week in their training and it goes up by an increased variable each day Okay. Um, for, if I'm going to use it for, I mean, I go everything from max holds. Like if we're doing like something I've been implementing recently for upper body endurance is we'll do a, let's say a inertia wave for 60 seconds. After that, we're going to, so here's what it would be. It would be 15 push-ups, inertia wave for 60 seconds. And then I'm going to throw a soccer ball to them. As soon as they're done with the inertia wave, they let it go. It flies back. They grab the soccer ball and they start a choke, like a rear naked choke. This is what I've been doing at the end of camp for upper body endurance. That's just a max hold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like endure or like uh, isometric holds for any and all durations. Um, I've used, you know, one to two second holds at the end of, like you were saying, like a plyometric or a speed-based exercise. Um, I've used three to five to seven second holds in a, a heavy strength block. You know, think about holding the bottom position squat for five seconds and then coming back up out of it. Yeah. Um, I use longer durational extra, uh, isometric exercises for more muscle endurance or as a sneaky way in GPP to build strength. Um, I love that's kind of my main implementation of isometrics is like, let's, uh, since again, it is so sports specific that we're going to start building it from a a foundational level. So in our GPP and our initial training phase, I want to introduce you to some of these isometric holds that you're going to see throughout your camp and in the future of your training. So I love isometric exercise and it's almost on the opposite side of the accentuated eccentrics we just talked about yeah. where eccentrics do so much damage and you got to be really kind of careful when to play, plug and play with them. Isometrics don't do a whole lot of damage. They're relatively lower risk mm-hmm. and you can play with them and do them any time of the training year. You know, you just talked about doing it at the end of camp for upper body endurance. I just talked about doing it in GPP away from camp. Um, you can implement this in almost any training phase, as long as you, you have a really a, a clear designed goal of where you're going with your isometrics. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's it also, it plays into a lot of core work because something that I, I also don't think gets worked up enough is anti-rotation based exercises. And that plays right into anti-rotation based exercises. What is it? You're holding a low bear with an arm out and a leg out. So you're holding like a, almost like a bird dog. 
boom, mm-hmm. that's an isometric if you do it, right? right. Holding, a, holding a plank, that's an isometric. One of, I think, one of the least used exercises for one of the least used protocols is Copenhagen planks. Right. Not enough people do them. That's just an isometric. Right. All of these different things can overload the system and you can do them. I use Copenhagen's everywhere from literally two weeks after the fight all the way up until two weeks before the fight because they're they're that type of exercise. Yeah, and I think one little nuance or one thing that I kind of geek out about with isometrics is like they can be easy if you do them really shittily. Yeah, you know, yeah, you, can, like you can yeah, you can skeet by and you can uh cruise through an isometric based workout if you're not really attention to detail or trying to do them the exact way or feel the right type of stress in a plank. Like that's one of my favorite exercises. Planks and push-ups are two of my favorite exercises to coach because everybody does them wrong and I get to kind of mm-hmm. open the door, shed the light on how to do these exercises. Right. So like with a plank, um, one of the key things that I, I tell people is like, you're not just holding your hips up and trying to make a flat back and everything. I want you to actively and isometrically pull your elbows to your toes and then pull your toes into your elbows. Mm-hmm. Right. And that just line of stress in the anterior gives you so much bang for your buck out of the plank. And like, same thing with the push up. push up for a lot of guys out there for a lot of uh, MMA athletes, like if you do push-ups correctly, one, they're going to be way harder. Um, we can go into a whole different rant on what a correct push-up looks like. But if you are great at the push-up and you can do, let's say like 50 push-ups in one set, you know, the, the push-up's no longer really an upper body exercise. It's like, it's a core exercise that kind of masquerades as an upper body exercise for a lot of, like I said, the strong guys that can do a million push-ups in a row. So I like to kind of reemphasize some of the isometric stresses out of those like basic position because holding an isometric position is the exact same thing as having really good position. Yeah. Well, and that's why that's, I like another exercise to throw into that category of it's self-limiting, if you will, is the trap bar ISO hold. Mm -hmm. We I've been using that a bunch with uh, just where a couple of my wrestlers are at in their phases. I've been using that and you can see the people that understand the goal you're trying to. So a trap bar ISO hold is you have the trap bar. It's underneath the, you could put it wherever, but I have mine underneath the rack and I have the, well, I, don't, I always remember the technical name, the, the, I call them straps catches catches. Yeah. I, mean, I don't uh, know if that's technical. Yet, yeah. But. Anyways, I, I put the straps that are supposed to be there to stop people. If they drop a squat, I put them down so low that you can't lift them up. The rack is bolted into the ground, so you cannot lift it up. And you just try to stand all the way up with the trap bar, like you're doing a trap bar deadlift and you're pushing the ground away, knowing that you can't go anywhere. And then you yeah. hold that for a set progression. And if you want to look this up, it's called a isometric mid thigh pull. Yes. That's yeah. kind of the, the research term on it. Yeah. Except I use trap bar and that one would be a straight bar either way, neither here nor it's there. Fine. But fine. Fine. this one, you can check that's weed that's in the weeds. This one, you can really see the people that get it and the people that don't, because yeah. you should be fried. If you do fuck even 12 seconds, if you do 12 seconds, Dude, yeah, which is a lot is long, <laughs> if you do 12 seconds, you should be fried after, if you understand what you're doing, if you do mm-hmm. six seconds, you should be fried. And yeah. then you get these people that like, I, I've had an athlete, he did it for 30. Like it was so just supposed to be a max hold at your max contraction. And he didn't even start shaking until 30 seconds in. I'm like, you don't know how to do this. We're regressing. Yeah. Right. That's very fair. And, uh, I've actually used in a lot of learning progressions. Like if you want to know if somebody like understands how to organize their body correctly for the deadlift and you throw them on this and then, you know, they're 
shoulders pop to the ceiling or they, their hips escape out behind them. Like as a good, again, learning kind of type of progression. And I'm going to say that for almost every kind of category or phase in this is that it's a good learning progression. And what makes it good learning is not the specific, you know, little tweak that we're doing. It's not the eccentric going down slowly. It's not the holding position that makes it really good for learning. It's the variable stimulus that makes it really good for learning. Like you present a package in 12 different ways your athlete's going to learn it better than if they practice one certain way on repeat. Um, then that's just kind of pedagogy 101. But introduce some variability, especially when your athlete's first learning a movement. They're not going to do very good on it, but it leads to a lot better retainment and, and learning um, from that aspect of things. Do you want to talk about the concentric says, or do people get that part? I think that's fairly understand, understood. One thing I do want to dip into, and this can kind of be our transition away from triphasic. Um, but a contrast after this, I was going to go to yeah, I was going to go to speed of movement. Okay, so. that's fine. Um, so yeah, so concentric phase is like is obviously emphasizing the concentric muscle action, so moving the bar up, which is what you know typically ninety percent of our gym goers, ninety percent of our training and conditioning looks like. But one small variable that I found out that is not a very small variable is the speed of the concentric action. Yeah. Right, the difference in moving a ninety percent of your max versus a sixty percent of your max, the really only change should be how fast the bar comes off the ground or how fast you can lift the bar. Um, this was kind of a principle that was hammered into me as I was personally strength training is no matter how much weights on the bar, you should be maximally contracting, um, and trying to move the bar as fast as you can. Every time doesn't matter. doesn't matter if there's, you know, 135 on the bar, or if there's 315 on the bar, Every time you're doing a maximal concentric action, you're trying to move the bar as fast as possible, move the band as fast as possible, move your body as fast as possible, whatever it is. It's just, if there happens to resi be resistance, you're going to move slower and that's okay. Right. So we can plan for that as coaches and, and call it a, a speed block or a, a strength speed block or speed strength, whatever kind of labels that you put on it as a strength coach. But the speed of the movement really determines what, phase we're in as far as speed and concentric actions go. It's not necessarily the load on the bar, which the load on the bar gives us a good indication of how fast we're going to move. But, you know, you learn this with velocity-based training and with the gym wear and everything, like the speed of the movement is the actual output that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was taking a drink of water. I thought you had more. That's why uh, I wanted to transition. <laughs> I just like catching you in those awkward transitions. No, um, I 100% uh, agree. That's, and that's why we have, we had that whole, um, speed of skill or speed and strength curve that we had that we created through building a fighter. We even did that and made it personalized to MMA for the different mm -hmm. skill sets. Uh, but it's so important because that's, if you can isolate the variables at which you want to train and the speed of the movement, you can break their fight camp down into, am I trying to hammer, hammer home what the game plan is? Say, we're going to go out there and it's going to be a striking battle. We know it's going to be a striking battle. Well, guess what? We're probably going to do more speed-based work, if mm -hmm. you will, right? We're, we're going to do more speed strength stuff. If we know we're going out there against a world champion jujitsu and my athlete is also a grappler, well, guess what? It's probably not going to be a striking battle unless that's the game plan, unless you think you have the advantage. But then I'm going to gear heavily more towards the strength speed type movements at the bottom of the curve or the, the isometric type movements we just talked about, stuff like that. So it, 
the speed at which you're moving the bar to me allows me to help organize my thoughts for setting up the camp. And I use it a lot in camp that that's where I, I really prioritize the speed at which you move the bar. Yeah. A hundred percent because, you know, absolute load becomes less important when we're talking about like peaking for a fight. Um, and that's where we can bring some like specificity into it or like, when we start to play with the speed of the movement, add some variability into that. Because if you think of an MMA fighter, you think at really any sport ever, you know, besides your like super controlled settings, um, the speed of movement and the variability in the speed of movement is what gets you like winning or results, right? So if we're in the octagon and we're striking, have a striking battle, it's like, you know, if I play with my jab and I throw one, maybe 30%, maybe I throw 170 and I go back to 50 and then I throw a hundred percent jab, like, I'm going to catch you with hundred percent because you don't know what's coming. Right. And it's like, it's the speed of movement and changing that around that is sports performance or is some type of movement. So that's where we get into some contrast training or like, I know Austin has been doing a lot of French contrast training recently, but contrast training is a training methodology where we change the speed of the movement. And I, this is kind of an unconventional take on it, but we allow the different speeds of movements to complement each other. And we, get a lot more power gains because we're intermixing some of the strength into our contrast movement. So I would do like a heavy set of back squats immediately after the back squats, I step back from the bar and I do a set of maximal vertical jumps. Yep. Right. And so like, that's a very simple contrast and those things have been proven to um, benefit each other, be mutually beneficial where we can increase strength and, but more primarily power out of that, which has been a really good tried and true strength training method. Um, well, one, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, it's with contrast training in general, right? It's what is power? What, what is total body power? It's strength times speed. You want to, you want to move, got to be as strong as possible and move as fast as possible. In my head, what it makes sense is we're training the overall, we're literally training two parts of the equation. We're training the end goal, which is or we're training the speed, which is the plyometric, and we're training the strength. And that's just going to have an overall impact on power. It's just a mathematical equation in my head. And that's how contrast should be looked at. Yeah. And I kind of think about it as, um, I don't have to think how you think, Austin. Don't put me in your boxes. I know, but I just want to give my take. Um, The other thing that I think about is like motor unit recruitment and uh, like a a small bit of like post-activation potentiation. Um, which post-activation potentiation for some of you exercise science nerds and people that have heard that uh, term be thrown around is literally just a good warm-up. If you have a good warm-up, you are post-activation potentiated. Like that's like, I don't know, some of the nonsense I see going around, but um, the heavy strength movement recruits more heavy motor units or more high power motor units so that those are more readily or ready to be active when we do the plyometric jump, AKA you jump higher. Right. So like, that's, that's kind of feeling, Oh, I feel weightless. Right. I just did a heavy squat. And now I'm, I'm just jumping my body weight. Um, it's because some of your muscle fibers are predisposed to trigger a little quicker now. Um, well, so I want to push back on what you were saying. So not push back, but you know what I mean? No, with with PAP, with post-activation potentiation, I think the reason why it works so well and why it's lauded so much in contrast training is there's a diminishing return based upon how far away from the activation there is. So like that, that's where I don't necessarily agree with a good warm up is going to lead to PAP because the further away from the activation, 
the more of the diminishing return on the on the post activation potentiation. It's a it's a rough window of like five to seven minutes is is kind of where you have your your goal from. So if, that, I, if I'm doing, I've literally Austin. D, I've looked at this a lot, dude. Yeah, I've looked at it a lot too. <laughs> and please let's let's hash it out here. I want I want to clear the air. So in my research, post activation potentiation, you're best activated after a moderate warm up of three to five sets. Okay. And the, you have to kind of try the line between fatigue and um, potentiation, but that's a different conversation. Um, and it's done at a moderate loading scale. It's, you know, 60, 80%. It's not max. So, right. But so that doesn't take into account the motor unit recruitment because the only way to, you would, so it also, you have to take post-activation potentiation and motor unit recruitment. That's why contrast works so well, because we get the increased motor unit recruitment of the high loaded weight. And then yeah. you go, you, that is the, that is literally potentiation in nature. And that adds in, that's why you're allowed to get that extended bang for your buck because yeah. you pair the PAP and then you have the motor unit recruitment, which goes away way quicker. So yeah. then you can pair those and then get a maximal jump. That's you get the plyometric to go higher, further, faster. Okay. So I think I, I was looking at it in a sense of post-activation potentiation in its silo and then contrast training in its silo where you're looking at the PAP within the contrast. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah. And the biggest thing with post-activation potentiation that I, I kind of get is, you know, walking the tightrope between fatigue and right. That's true. Um, potentiated, right? Yes. Because if, if we hit, you know, let's do that set of squats, but let's do eight reps instead of three. Now my jump is going to be dog shit and I'm not going to get the, the well, that's just be a better coach. Benefit. Right. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I'm, I'm articulating no, I, a point is you yeah, can't, I know, I know you can't put yourself in the ground and then try and jump and call it contrast training. Right. right. Um, I have one more point going off of that. Um, contrast training. Uh, this is where we kind of start to separate the experienced weightlifters or strength and conditioning athletes from like the novice type of oh yeah athlete right like mm -hmm. somebody second week in the weight room probably not going to put them on contrast training you know unless no. they're coming from a different weight room that they've been training at for years so that's where we get into a little more of our advanced um lifting methodologies is this contrast training i probably wouldn't do it or i wouldn't do it for the specific power development aspect with a relative novice in the weight room uh, no, this is again, best for advanced lifters. And I use this a lot for plateaus. Um, yeah. If I have an athlete hitting a plateau, I'll throw a version of contrast training at them because we know that that is going to have an overall great effect on the total body power they can generate. So like, um, yeah. an easy example, uh, one of my athletes, Hunter Azure, great fighter. Uh, we were, we were just hitting a black plateau on how much more we could get on his weighted pull-up. So we went into a French, this is a post on building a fighter. We went into a French contrast training uh, methodology for pull-ups, which is pull-ups with a kettlebell beneath, with his legs, body weight pull-ups for speed, banded pull-ups, and then into band assisted pull-ups where you're speeding up through the bar. And we went yeah. through a whole, like, I think it was a five week mezzo on that worked our way up. And now we did our retest after, and he was able to put an extra 25 pounds on his weighted pull-up. There we go. We got through the plateau. Yeah. And so two things going off of that, I think um, your contrast variability was great. I think in that situation too, but I also think plateaus are best um, overcame by variability period. Like yeah. you did a French contrast and that probably got you the most like superior results, but 
changing up anything in that recipe probably sure. would have given you results, right? Like For if sure. you're just doing straight strength sets and you're like, oh man, I'm hitting a plateau. I can't lift any more weight. Like add a tempo, add a contrast, add partial range of motion, add some type of variability to your motion or your movement, you know, do a different exercise that works the same muscle groups, right? Stuff like that. Um, adding variability is how you bust through plateaus. Like, sorry, every personal trainer ever, I'm giving away your secrets, <laughs> but adding variability to your training is how you bust through plateaus. Cause your body responds a lot more to variability than it does to increasing load, increasing frequency, increasing volume, stuff like that. Like you still get a lot of responses from all that other stuff, but variability is kind of the key. It's like, Oh man, I changed up my workout and now I'm super sore. You know, like that's not a coincidence. It's the variability within it. So, um, I think that's great job on your part, but also one of the kind of keys to training is the variability aspect. For sure. For sure. Um, now let's get into French contrasting because we talked about contrast training in general. French contrasting is kind of a, a specific um, method of uh, contrast training, which is even more advanced. Again, don't do this with your, your gym newbie. Don't do this if you're flirting with the idea of contrasting. Don't jump into French contrasting. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, again, advanced type of training. Yeah. But where you do a strength training exercise and then you go into a plyometric overweight plyometric and then assisted plyometric. Yep. Um, I always kind of befuddle those, the, or the sequence of that. So I think that was correct. Um, but Austin kind of described it with pull-ups, you know, I've done it with like a trap bar deadlift where you do a trap bar deadlift, you do a vertical jump, you do like a resistive vertical jump. So you're holding maybe 20 pound weights in your hands, doing a vertical jump. And then you grab a band that's attached to the rack and it helps you on the way up and you do an assisted vertical jump. Yeah. Right. So you're playing with every speed of motion. You're doing even over speed um, training with the assisted movement. And again, more variables in speed of movement, more uh, motor unit recruitment, more different um, adaptations come from this. Um, Austin, have you really dug into French contrasting and kind of yes. the uh, benefits yeah. behind that? And I would, I would love it if you expanded on that point. Well, it's, it's, Exactly what you just said, unfortunately. So I'm not going to be able to add much. Um, but the biggest thing is that you are getting the increased motor unit recruitment. And then at the end, you get the overspeed effect, which we know like you can only go as far as your brain can stop, right? It's the number one job of the brain is to not hurt itself. So if you get the overspeed jump, your brain shows that, oh, fuck, I'm capable of doing this after I created all of these different stimuli at a high motor unit recruitment. So like Alex said, it's, and it doesn't actually, so like I said, I've dug into this a little bit. It doesn't actually have to be just plyometrics. It could be different waves on the speed strength scale as well. So it's, it's typically going to be a, a high load exercise, your high heavy strength that based exercise over 85%. And then it can be a plyometric, or it can just be an, a speed based movement. Yeah. Then you get into, that's where you want your speed strength movement. So it, it could be a weighted jump. It could be a banded jump. It could, it doesn't have to just be, um, a, a plyo either. It can just be a speed movement. Yeah. And then you get into overspeed at the end and all four of these different phases, a, like we talked about maximize our PAP because it's diminishing of return. It's all right in a row. You don't want a bunch of time in between, but then on top of that, it, it leads to that increased motor unit recruitment that causes your brain to create those adaptations. Oh man. And, uh, if you ever haven't tried a French contrast workout and you're a strength conditioning practitioner and you want to put your novice athlete into it, I implore you, please go do one. 
you know, Dude. do a French t- contrast, put yourself on the correct, you know, 60 to 90 second rest in between sets. It is a motherfucker, man. Dude, I, um, so, you know, like I'm the, everybody knows I like DNS a lot. And, but mm-hmm. after yeah, I feel like after you do a DNS exercise, your muscles aren't super tired. Your brain is tired. Right. That's how I feel after French contrast, except my muscles are also tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, I, uh, the first time I ever did a French contrast, I was at the University of Denver. I was training with Gary Boros, who is the head uh, men's basketball strength coach, among other sports. Um, but I was doing the basketball lift and trying to expose myself to a lot of different stimulus. And so what we were doing was a safety bar split squat um, right into hurdle jumps, right into split jumps, and then band assisted split jumps. Yeah. Fuck. And, and the numbers are low. You're only doing like two or three yeah. reps a piece of all these movements, but then you get 60 second rest and you go back, man, that was one of the hardest cardio workouts I've ever done. Yes. Not just strength training. Like yeah. I was dying. I know. I feel, I feel bad when I throw it in one that I've been utilizing mm-hmm. a lot is um, I've used it with a lot of my striking based, like just purely striking based athlete is a mm-hmm. lateral version of it. Yeah. So it's a lateral lunge into a what was it it's a lateral lunge into a skater jump back and forth into a banded skater jump uh, there's also like a technical name that some dude that came up with these i don't remember but a so a band around the hips you're jumping into the band and then band assisted skater jump jumping back towards yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. an overspeed jump and it's put on it's actually helped a lot with lateral quickness and yeah. especially like for boxing where you have to make those tight turns and being yeah. able to step side to side, but fuck, do I feel bad when I throw it in? Cause that <laughs> shit fries them. Yeah, dude. And, that, and that's when I feel like it's really fun to be a strength coach too. Cause you can play with like the, the variables and you get to be creative with like what type of movements you see or create or go after. Um, that's what I think is fun with for me is well, the creativity. Dude, that's my art. Like you're, you're good at drawing and shit. I, I don't even have that. I can't color in the lines, <laughs> like making programs and playing with these variables. To me, that's art. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I feel the same way. Um, now I want to come throw a curveball at you as we're talking about modifying the speed of the movement. Um, one method of training that's caught on in recent popularity is a partial range of motion Fuck type you. of training. I know. Right. Um, here's a, uh, Eat my ass. That, that doesn't curve. Um, so Austin, why, how, when, if would you use partial range of motion training rehab? Okay. Period. It, period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if I, if I have an athlete that is injured and I need to increase. So I use partial range of motions. Okay. Two reasons. There's two things, motor control and rehab, which technically are the same thing. But if I have an athlete, say they have an early butt wink, we know that that's not necessarily a indicator of low back pain, but I don't think it's very efficient. So I want to eliminate it from a performance standpoint. I would have them go to maybe 80 degrees and that's going to be their, well, technically 100 and 100 degrees, but that would be their range of motion. We would do that range of motion over and over again while we're training everything else in the trunk and decreasing adductor tightness. As we do that and their butt wing starts to go away, they hit full range of motion. There we go. The other thing is rehab. If I have an athlete that I have that maybe it's a pain science patient, we need graded exposure where their brain recognize is sending pain signal or they're getting pain signals at a split squat 
at the top of the movement. Well, then we'll do mini split squats and work our way down. And our increasing metric isn't going to be sets and reps. It isn't going to be time. It's going to be range of motion of the squat. And that's the variable at which I want to keep increasing as we go, because that tells the brain it's safe. It's okay. And it'll dampen the pain signals that they're getting. Those are the only two times I'll ever use limited range of motions. Yeah. And that being said, like the, the I don't care what you say, Joel Seedman, (laughs) the limited range of motion, uh, training begets, uh, a lot less, uh, training adaptations and a lot less benefit than some of the previous methodologies that we train or we talked about. That's why Austin's got such a hot take on it. Um, it's not the end all be all the partial range of motion training is actually kind of a, uh, you know, bullshit if you will, but one place that I will implement it and um, again, it's relatively meaningless. I don't think it really benefits more is if I'm trying to add volume and keep my athlete entertained, you know, yeah. right? Like yeah. if, if we're doing like a, a arm farm finisher or whatever, you can do your 21s at partial ranges of motion. Or if we're, uh, if I'm trying to add variability and make an exercise progress, like you can do one and a half squats or one and a half types of split squats. Um so those oh, are, I guess I do use those too. Yeah. Right. I so do like just, one and a quarter push-ups or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Adding variability and adding volume, you know, like you're just getting more if you're doing one and a half squats every time rather than one. So um, see, I, I don't think about partial range of motions like that. I think about partial range of motion as like, you're only doing a half of a rep. Like, yeah. Like exclusively. I, I don't doing count over one as a partial range of movement. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's different ways to think about the, the partial range of motion training stuff that's been going on recently. Um, anyway, back to our actual <laughs> methodologies of training, <laughs> get back out of that, uh, cameo, um, density circuits. Uh, I love density circuits. Love I've been them. using them more and more and more and more, uh, frequently with my athletes one, because it's just, it's a time efficient manner to accomplish my training goals. Like that's probably the, the biggest reason. Um, but it helps my athletes stay more on track. It helps them feel like they're, they're doing a little more work rather than me telling them, make sure you're resting here, make sure you're resting there. Um, but density circuits are really good in my opinion for aerobic power, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking, even if we're doing strength, strength training movements, um, if I'm having you on a six minute, you know, density block and you're busting through all these exercises, like you're getting an aerobic benefit from that. So that's where it becomes really useful in like a GPP or like a, um, initial conditioning type of segment. But then I also like to use it in camp, um, maybe even a little later, just to somewhat expedite all of the, um, boxes that we have to check. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have this, a certain athlete, we've been working on these core correctives or this certain, um, movement pattern for a long time. And we've done what we need to, we've gotten to a healthier range of motion. We've made the adaptation, whatever, but I'm not comfortable just kind of letting it sit on the side or I want to keep moving and keep using it. Well, like, all right, you got to, all right. Last thing today, you got a six minute density circuit. You got to bust out these four exercises and then just keep going continuously on them. Um, that helps me kind of make sure I'm still doing my housekeeping with, you know, the, the basic movement patterns or the enhanced range of motion that we've found already. Yeah. No. And, and outside of what you're saying, the two places that I love density circuits, I'm like you, I absolutely love them. I use them with almost every athlete are pace. It teaches pacing and it mitigates hypertrophy. Yeah. So 
pacing. It is the most, one of the most underlooked things in an athlete's training regimen. It's one of the most underlooked things in an athlete when you're doing a skills assessment and from a straight up performance basis. If you don't know what your base pace is, if you don't know what you should be operating on the outside of the cage, you, there's 0% chance you're going to be the most efficient when you're fighting, right? That's where density circuits thrive. Like I, I go crazy. Like it sounds bad. I go crazy. Sometimes if I have an athlete that really, truly doesn't know how to pace, I'll give them a 30 minute density circuit that I say, you have to be at a six out of 10 this entire time. Guess what? If you go at a 10 out of 10 on your first set, you're still completing all 30 minutes. I'm not going to stop you suffering. (laughs) So they learn real fucking quick what a pace is. And that's, you can do the same thing with just a univariable thing too, right? It doesn't have to just be a, uh, a density circuit. You can do that same pacing methodology with like an air bike, say you're going to do a hundred calories, figure it out real quick. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and you can even take it to like the, the skill room, like yeah. flow wrestling. Yep. Right. Like you can say, all right, we're just going to flow wrestle warm up or, or, um, flow roll, I guess would be a more prompt term or whatever, but like we're going for 30 minutes, right. You know, you're yep. going to get your hardos that figure it out real quick that this fucking sucks. Yep. Know? Exactly. And so that's where I love my density circuits because I can teach an athlete how to pace. And as long as I'm using low, I, I typically for my density circuits use low skilled movements. They're going to be more movement, like movement quality type stuff, yeah. like, uh, and body weight movements and, or movements that I know that athlete is extremely competent with. Yeah. So like Bryce Logan's one of my athletes, he's the best kettlebell swinger I've ever fucking seen. Almost every single one of his density circuits has a kettlebell swing component Besides because I know he can do it. Of course. No, your kettlebell swing is bullshit compared to his dude. Bryce is really good. <laughs> Austin's never seen me swing a kettlebell for everybody. Disagree. Um, but digress from you, this is where you also do it with GPP. Cause you can hit all your major boxes. You can get a sled push in, you can get yeah. a kettlebell movement in. you can add in your carries. You can do pushups and focus on the trunk stability component of a pushup. You can add in your funnels that slow down the density circuit, or you can allow them to go up and down. You add in maybe a power component right in the middle that has to elevate the heart rate. And then you put them back on the bike and make them try to maintain that pace. These are the different variables you can play with in the density circuit that I love. The other thing is mitigating hypertrophy. So if we have an athlete that's trying to make weight, I use density circuits throughout the, actually through the end of their training, because you get the aerobic component. They're always going, you're always firing that, that, uh, that I guess the furnace of the aerobic system. And then they have to just keep moving. But also if you're doing these different exercises in a row, your body's not going to be able to rebuild and create increased muscle density. As you go through it's, you put everything back to back with limited rest. You're not going to get the hypertrophy that you like that you're looking for. So it mitigates that. And you're able to just continue as you go without getting bigger. Yeah. And you can do it and you can see it as a little bit of like an aerobic steady state type of work. Mm -hmm. Like instead of hopping on the bike, keep your uh, our, oh my god, your beats per minute BPMs at like 125, 135. We're just going to keep your beats per minute at 125, 135, but we're going to do these different movements that aren't just cycling. Yeah, you know, exactly. like it, you can look at it that way too. And, and you get those additional benefits of different movements. Like Austin said, you can uh, play with and change up the pace and the variables in that density circuit. So, again, really good methodology for our fighters out there. Um, well, that's really a, hold on. That's a good point too, is you can add that in, in mobility circuits. Like that's yeah. something we didn't even talk about. That's it. You could do a density circuit as your warm up. 
it's yeah, 15 literally. minutes. You have six exercises at all these sets and reps and you just continue to go through. But if you keep it at that fat oxidation state, that's a fantastic way to just become more efficient as you're doing mobility circuits. If you keep that in your, your 125 to 140 ish, but you can also play with the aerobic. That's where I like, if I have a density circuit, I have, if they have a heart rate monitor, I have them throw it on. If they don't have a heart rate monitor, I have one at my office so that I can still track it. Or you tell them to get one. Well, I do, but the, you know, yeah. athletes, right. um, but so I have them throw it on and you can track, if you want aerobic power, you have to be at the top end of the green zone, but you don't want to flurry into the oranges and the the reds, right? You want to maintain right. that solid pace. So that's where you really know, am I training aerobic power or is this athlete at an eight out of 10, even though they say it's a six out of 10 yeah. and, oh, well, we're not actually getting the training stimulus I'm looking for. So you can quickly adapt. Or if you have to, if that athlete's at, in the yellow, maybe you make it a longer series. So they have to learn to pace more. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I'm a big fan of, um, well, I gotta word this carefully. I love when athletes are very intentional with their movement and they're trying to get the desired training effect. They're trying to feel what I'm explaining that they need to feel, mm -hmm. but that's not reality. A lot of times no. and a density circuit is a really good way to say, all right, this is what you need. Do this on in the uh, density circuit and you're going to get your benefit from yep. it. Right. I don't need to spend a million uh, seconds explaining like a single leg sit back. Right. right. I just need to say, do this movement. You're going to get the benefit from it. Like that's where I think, um, that approach where it's like athletes come to you because you know what they need. You don't necessarily mm -hmm. need to always tell them what they need. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can, you can take that type of like mental approach to the density circuit of like when your athletes in camp or they're after practice, or whatever, they just have like a get to work mindset. Like, yeah. all right, get to work on this. This is your warm up. Like you're right. on your own run through it. Well, and, and like we, we talking about, it's a metabolic effect. If we're doing a density circuit, typically we're doing it for the metabolic effect. Yeah. And that's all you got to say is it's going to train this system. Boom. Done over. You don't need to know anymore. We just get to it. Amen, dude. Amen, dude. All right. Any other training methodologies, um, or specific things we want to touch on and talk about sling stuff or we good without that. Uh, let's, yeah, let's hit on it since you brought it up a little bit. Um, and I'll let you take the lead on that one. Yep. So, um, well, there's a whole bunch of different training systems uh, that I guess probably the most popular one right now would be functional patterns, even though naughty's a douche. Um, but he's got great shit. You can't throw the yeah. baby out with the bathwater, but a sling system is the idea of following kind of, uh, was it Thomas Myers book anatomy trains and following the sling system of the body. We have these yeah. integrated fascial layers that go all the way through the body. The most important ones for MMA being our oblique sling systems, um, our anterior oblique sling, which basically connects our right pec all the way down in a diagonal, kind of like a, a satchel to the left hip. And then through it well as the posterior oblique sling, which is going to go from the right. I think technically it starts above the lat, but I'm going to go with the right lat all the way to the left glute and the outer yeah. glute. And it follows a spiral line down the legs. So these are what we use. Oh, you go, go. Oh, I was just going to say, I like the, the sling system of, and I look at it more like a contralateral type of, of training versus like a sling system. And I think, um, again, for my terms and intents, contralateral does the job when I think of like right lat to left glute or something like that. And 
I like to train these as an introduction to like combination type of movements because they do take a little coordination to get down. And that's what we're training is kind of the sling and coordination and how to get a rubber band or like a torque effect out of this, this sling. And that's like the biggest thing for me is, is like when I do a reverse lunge to a row, you know, so I'm doing, I got the band in my right hand, I'm hitting a reverse lunge with my right leg. So I got lat as I pull and the glue as I come up to my high knee at the same time. Again, um, just if you need to, you can YouTube that. But it's a way to integrate the system to make it more effective and, and, and more like a rubber band using torque and more fluid type of movement rather than, you know, all of these segregated individual boxes that we like to check things into as strength coaches. Um, And that's where I really feel like a lot of dynamic movement is going. And that's where, that's how you perform in your sport. So I think that's something that we should integrate into our actual training. For sure. No. And this, so I use sling systems type stuff. um, When I am, I call it the connect the dots exercises. Yeah. That, that's typically, if I want to integrate a new movement in, then I'm going to use like an eccentric iso- isometric approach to combine sling stuff with triphasic stuff yeah. and load up. Maybe it's a one I use very, very commonly is a rotational rear foot elevated split squat. Yeah. Super common in my programs. And this is how I train people to use the glute in the exercise. Yeah. And I'll have them do this rotational rear foot elevated split squat. We're going to do a three eccentric, a five isometric, and then just come out of the hole. But you have to twist back the hips and the shoulders move in the same pattern. And that's the main thing. It's not necessarily, I'm going to increase variables as we go. It's not necessarily, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. The increasing variable is going to be the motor quality. And I need to make sure that they can, can join their lat and their glute. If they cannot do that, if they're not pulling and they're not trunk is not rotating in the same way, they're muscularly inefficient in their sport. I know that for a fact. So then I can just load that up. Maybe, maybe we do 15 pounds on top of that and we start to load the pattern, but then we start to see the correlation into their sport. Maybe I make it extremely sport specific and I do like a pulley push pull. Another extremely common one where you have the pulleys down around, around shoulders level. One is pulling, the other one's pushing and the trunk has to rotate in the same way, moving left to right. This is just an integration exercise. Right. And that's where I like to kind of play with my different pedagogical um, little approaches or, or like uh, tricks. Like I've had a little bit more success by just teaching these um, exercises like a discrete skill. And I've had less success trying to block them and, and teach them that way. So if we're talking about, you know, that reverse lunge to row that I was talking about, it's beneficial if an athlete knows how to reverse lunge and knows how to row already, but I don't teach it like, all right, you're going to lunge, then you row, then you put it together. Like that I, I've right. had a lot less success at, whereas if I just teach it as a discrete skill, like, all right, this is the type of movement that we're doing. And this is, we're going to do our best just to find a flow and find a rhythm while we do this. I've mm-hmm. had a lot more success, um, in that type of teaching of these, uh, sling type patterns, because I think they are a lot more feel type of exercises. Like you have to feel the, the stretching and the rubber band effect of that sling in order to find a rhythm essentially, and then get some power out of it in the long term, Right. So that's ultimate kind of reason that we do this is total muscle. Like you said, coordination, and then the resulting power out of it. So, um, I think integrating this is again, and again, I go back and forth in my head, whether I could do it with novices or advanced athletes as well. Like if I do it with novices, it's not necessarily to get the power benefit. It's to increase the coordination and get them moving in this certain way 
at all. If I do it with more advanced athletes, it's for that power benefit. It's for a specific um, bucket that I want to fill in their camp. I actually like combining the last two things we talked about. I combine, once I know the athlete is proficient, I combine sling-based movements with density circuits so that I can show like system efficiency under fatigue. Because if you can't do, if you can't, if say you start your density circuit and we have same exercise, rotational roof David split squats. I normally wouldn't pick that because that's a funnel that'll slow them down, but say that's what it is. So we're doing rotational roof elevated split squats. The first sex or first three sets are fantastic. This is a 15 minute density circuit. I expect there to be five sets through their fourth set. The athlete is just rotating all chest, no hips. That's their breaking point. I know that their functional capacity is 10 minutes, not 15 minutes. I need and to scale that their hips than their trunk, right? Correct. And so I need to scale that back in their next program. And then I get to, uh, or in their next week of training back to 10 minutes, because the goal of this is functional capacity, right? Typical density circuits are functional capacity based circuits. So, you know, and I, and I like that as well, because for me, a lot of my sling movements are tempo and, uh, like kind of rhythmic based movements like, um, that lunge is a real, I use a lot. I, I've, I programmed maxi lunges before. Do you know what those are, Austin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, um, I guess, cross-body swing as you lunge. Yeah. Um, and again, that would have the opposite effect. I think then your rear foot elevated with rotation. Um, it increases the tempo of the density circuit. So yeah. again, just plan appropriately for that type of stuff. And I mean, and that's a pretty big exposing exercise too, because it does take a lot of balance coordination and stability to do that maxi lunge. So you're going to know right away if your athlete walks into the third round and all of a sudden they're hobbling all over the place and can't stabilize, like you mm-hmm. can see very clearly where the functional capacity lies in, in movements like that. So, um, yeah, I like really a, a good one for approach. density circuits is low bear sit outs. Yep. That's the one where I can, that's kind of like my tester. If I want to see for all the athletes that I work with that are listening, um, if I want to see how well your sling system is firing and I need to test that in your monthly circuit, well, guess what? Then I'm going to throw low bear sit outs in because if you're not elbowing the sky and you're not leading with the chest, I immediately know that you're not as efficient as possible. Cause I know every single one of you have walked through this. I know you're competent at it. And then where do you break under fatigue? Cause I how, know that they can do it. How soon right. does your butt get all the way to the ceiling? Exactly. Or how soon do you just kick through and you don't even rotate through the upper body? It's just yeah. hips, not shoulders, the inverse of the rotational, um, right. roof elevated split squat. Yeah. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head with like a, you have to have a base level understanding of the movement before we really test the functional capacity. Like mm-hmm. that's then you're, you're mixing yourself up with like, um, do you know the movement or are you tired? Like there's right. two very exactly. different reactions for that, but do you just not understand where the athlete's training age is? Yeah. And that's where I go back to my three like cues or my three understanding is why exercise athletes fuck up exercises. It's like, you don't know what to do. Um, you know what to do, but you can't, which is functional capacity or you just don't give a fuck. So there's the, the three yeah. Yeah. that I go to. But no, I think that's really good for exercise methodologies. I, I would say sling systems are a little less methodology, a little more um, like training approach, I guess. Yeah, I, I was know. about to say ideology. Yeah. Less ideology methodology, is, more is ideology. But yeah. nonetheless, worthy of inclusion in this conversation. Um, yeah. Funct- but, I guess functional patterns would be more training system, but 
neither here nor there. Yep. Uh, all right, guys, if you got to get in touch with us, all of our information is going to be in the show notes. Uh, if you want to check out our strength conditioning programs and our low back program, those are all at buildingafighter.com. Um, be on the lookout. We're starting our marketing campaign coming up soon. So be sure to like those ads on Instagram and Facebook so that we keep getting boosted in the SEO on the social media sites. And as always, this is Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And we are out. Out.